John chapter 15. I think probably, perhaps thus far for me at least, uh, let you into the life of the pastor. I think this is probably the hardest passage to preach that we've hit yet in the book. Um, Two reasons. One would be the content is so familiar. And two, the structure is so convoluted. Uh, So I would encourage you to read along. uh, And then uh, as I pray the prayer of illumination, I would again ask that you pray for me uh, as you always do. This is God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give life and light. That we might hear from heaven. And we might hear and obey. And in doing so, glorify your name. For Christ's sake, amen. A comfortable silence. That was not one of them, just in case you didn't know. I already see people squirming. It's like it's been four seconds and he's not talking. And I already am uncomfortable with that reality. What is a comfortable silence? 
Comfortable silence is when you have grown in a relationship with someone to the point where you share life and conviction and intimacy to a point where you don't really have to talk all the time. You can be in the same place and it can be silent and it can be okay. For some of us that have maybe a little bit more words than others, that can take a lot to get to that point. For others, it maybe comes a bit more easily. But the goal is to have your life so contaminated with the other that you're comfortable in that intimacy together. I know you, you know me. We can be quiet together and it be all right. You remember in college when you were beginning to make friends with people and how awkward it was when it was quiet. We get to know each other. We get to love each other. We get to be a part of one another. We share in one another. And even the silence can be comforting. You know in family where sometimes you just want another person in the room with you. Maybe they're reading a book. Maybe you're reading a book. It doesn't matter. It's comforting to have them there. There's an intimacy of presence. Jesus is going to pick up this same idea, not of silence, but the idea of the intimacy of presence in this passage. This shared life, this contaminating one another, this knowledge and love, this intimacy. He's going to use a word that we never use today, really, abide. A word that, aside from a couple of specific movies, you never talk about ever. But means that familiarity, that closeness, that comfort, that knowledge and intimacy. You see, he's meeting with his disciples at this point, and to remind you, the betrayer has left. Possessed by the devil, he's gone, and he is actively seeking to destroy Jesus at this point. And he's left with his 11 disciples, and they've just shared this intimate meal together. And Jesus is giving them last instructions. They already know he's headed to die. He's leaving them. They are varying levels of understanding of that. And he's just been teaching them that he is the way to heaven and that they do not need to fear because he is with them. And now he changes gears. And he picks up in verse 1 something that for them would have made total sense. And for us we read and go, that makes no sense. He starts with, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. In most parts of scripture, you can ask a 12-year-old and they're going to give you a good idea of what it means. Not so much in this one. Because this idea of the vine is actually an idea from the Psalms. A reoccurring illustration that the Psalms use to refer to one specific relationship. The relationship between God and His people. Psalm 80 tells of this. I'm going to read just a portion of it. Restore us, this is verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Why? You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. 
You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way may pluck its fruit? What is the psalmist using the vine as? Well, it's a portrait really of two things. One, it's a picture of Israel, of God's people. And it's God's people specifically, secondly, when they're filled in abundance. It's not God's people when they're under judgment or discipline. It's not God's people when they're in destruction or when they're violating his will. It's God's people in abundance. And so Jesus sits in front of his disciples and intimately teaching them, giving them some of the most profound and prolonged teaching we have of any of the Gospels. And he says to them in the midst of this intimacy, look, I am the true vine. And they would have understood exactly what he meant right on the surface, that Jesus is telling he's the true people of God. You don't want to know what the people of God look like. It's it's Jesus. Why? Because he is the Son of God himself. He is God and is man. But not just that he is God, that he is the embodiment of the people of God, but that he is the embodiment of God's blessing for the people of God. Now, that's an important relationship to understand, a a key cog in the arrangement. It's very different than saying, maybe you remember hearing the sentence, just wait till your father gets home. (laughs) You understood that that still meant that you, you got to be with dad, but it was not the way you wanted because it meant you got in trouble when he got home. Jesus instead is saying, look, I am the representative of all of God's people. I am the true Israel. I am the true people of God. And what do I bring for them? The abundance of blessing. You remember the vines in the Old Testament are that long-running picture of abundance. The blessings that are given to Judah in his uh, benediction from his father. It's all dealing with the vine and with blessing and it overtaking the land. You have portraits of what true riches look like is that the the vine is producing so abundantly that the grapes kind of fall off. They turn to juice and it runs down the hills and wine flows from the top of the mountains to the bottoms. Another portrait of uh, such wealth in Israel, such abundance that when you have to wash your clothes, you have a tough time finding water because there's so much wine everywhere. So you wash your clothes in wine kind of a silly point. I mean, it's, it, we would take it as like, you know, the Scrooge McDuck illustration of you have so much money that you start using it for silly things like, oh, you need a napkin. Here's a thousand dollar bill. You know, it's that kind of same illustration. There's just so much abundance. They don't know what to do with it. And so Jesus sits in their midst and says, look, I am Israel and I am abundance for God's people. And that would have been really impressive for a bunch of poor, ignorant, mostly fishermen who were following a man who is poorer than they are, who doesn't have a place to lay his head, who's a traveling rabbi who probably doesn't get to bathe that frequently because he doesn't own a home. He doesn't own something to bathe with. He really lives on other people's hospitality. And in the midst of living on other people's hospitality, he's saying, look, you want to know what real abundance is? 
says the man who owns nothing, so they think, I own it all. I am abundance. I have all of the riches of heaven. I have all of the glories that God has to give. They belong to me. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. And then Jesus uh, jumps into here a number of consequences of this relationship. What are the consequences of him being the true Israel and him bringing blessing for God's people? What is what does it mean? The translation, so what? I mean, that's neat and all, Jesus, but who cares? It's neat that you're the people of God. It's neat that you're the abundance of God, but who cares? What are the consequences? Well, we're going to look at four. Uh, and to say that John is a bit of a disorganized thinker would be a bit generous to John. Uh, he blends these themes kind of like, you know, puts them in the blender, hits puree, and they just kind of all mingle and merge together. And you get a consequence of God's blessing smoothie in the rest of the passage. First, to highlight the presence of Christ. Okay, so his, his, he is the abundance of God. He is the people of God. So his presence does something different. The first to note is that his presence produces fruit in his people. The presence of Christ produces fruit in his people. So I am the vine. Father's the fine dresser. Okay, we, we get the opening illustration. Every branch of mine... That does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And for an agricultural society, this would be one of those things like, oh, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. And again, many of us have never lived on a farm or never really kind of worked with anything having to do with agriculture except to kill it. Um, This doesn't resonate quite as well. Uh, But it I mean, you you understand the general concept that if you've planted a grapevine and it's growing, And when it comes time for harvest, you see there are some branches that are not producing fruit. What do you do with them? Well, you cut them off so that they don't continue to take resources away from those that do produce fruit. And the ones that do produce fruit, you trim properly so that they grow correctly, so that they produce more and more and more fruit. The best illustration that some of us maybe can relate to is our crepe myrtles in this part of the country, which grow like weeds once you get them to take. And the question is, do you want them to be tall and thin, or do you want them to be short bushes, or do you want them to have tons and tons of flowers? How do you murder them at the right time of year so that they grow back correctly? You can look at the one just outside my office. I look at it every day, and you can see the stages of cuts where it was trimmed back so that the flowers and the branches would grow back correctly. The result of it is it's beautiful when it flowers. It's the right shape and tons of flowers. Jesus here not talking flowers as much, talking fruit and saying, look, my presence, my people are going to be characterized by constantly producing fruit. That's what it means to be a part of Christ, to have his presence in them, is that they will bear fruit, and he loves them so much that he's going to prune them so that they produce more and more and more fruit. He doesn't just let them grow wild and be like, oh, that's neat and all. I mean, it's cool, but they'll produce fruit like, you know, whatever. For some of us, we have maybe blackberry bushes that are growing out in the back, otherwise known as briars. And they'll produce like, you know, five blackberries for like every 10 trillion thorns. 
And you're like, well, that's, that's not really good ratio. We need to figure out how to get these plants a little bit healthier so maybe we could get more than five blackberries for every 10 trillion thorns. That's what Jesus is doing is pruning his people so they're producing more and more fruit and healthier and more robust fruit. And why is this possible? Why is it that his people do this? Verse 3, because they're already clean. He's already transformed them. They're already new on the inside. It's not an issue of if I do good things, then I'm God's child. It's not an issue of if I live a good life, well, then I will belong to him. If I'm better than my neighbor, if I do more good works, then I will be a Christian. No, instead, Jesus is clarifying the arrangement. Already, you're clean already because I've saved you. I've worked in you. I've redeemed you. I've converted you. I've regenerated you. I'm sanctifying you. And now in light of that, you're producing more and more and more fruit. And how do we do that? What's the key to producing fruit? We get to verse 4. Thus far, we've most likely been tracking and we get here and he uses a word that's very common in English and none of us know what it means. Abide in me. And I and you, and I'm like, I love that hymn. It's my favorite. I have no idea what it means. J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, shameless plug, defines this saying, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him. To be always leaning on Him, resting on Him, pouring out our hearts to Him and using Him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have His words abiding in us is to keep His sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. Is that he, he becomes, in essence, the substance of our life. It, it's constantly there. He's constantly working in us and in the front of our minds, and we're thinking of him. And as we process the world, we process it through his lens. When I was young, we had a foreign exchange student come and live with us. He was from another country and had a very rigid diet of spices from another country. And one of the fun conversations that we got to have, me as a young man having no concept of social etiquette and decency, and him as a very patient older man who uh, was not offended by a young man's silly questions, uh, the notice of the fragrance that followed him and the fragrance that followed our home. He ate from a totally different spice set and those oils from his skin, you you could tell everywhere he had been in the house. Likewise, the second he stepped into an American home, he could tell exactly if his people had lived there or not because the spices were totally different. There was a sense of contagion in the home. He could tell who had been there if he had or had not because the smell was different. And Jesus is, in essence, saying, what is abiding? Well, abiding is the same kind of thing. It's it's being so filled with Jesus, like these spices, that what kind of exudes from us is Christ. When something leaks, it's Christ. It's 
bubbling over. He is the reality of our world. So that when we think, we think in terms of Christ. When we feel, we feel in terms of Christ. When we act, we act in terms of Christ. We don't think of this particularly in terms of our relationship with God, but we do think these kind of thoughts when we think about marriage and when we think about children. Many of us, before we were married or when we were first married, we had this wonderfully romantic idea of, you know, what is marriage? It means we'll do every single thing together and we'll be together every waking minute of the day. And then you get married and four or five years later, you're like, that's a terrible plan. (laughs) Personal time is a good thing. Preserves my life so she doesn't smother me in my sleep. It's a good thing. But we had this idea young early on of like, it'll be perfect to be every waking moment filled with this person so that everything that I think or feel or do is shaped by this human. Or when we were children, it was that reality with our parents. Every waking moment, thought, you know, feeling or action is shaped by what are mom and dad going to think? What are mom and dad going to do? Am I allowed to do this? Am I not? It shapes everything of who we are. That that is the reality of what abiding is. To have all of who we are shaped by another person. In this case, Christ. To remain in Him. To live in Him. And it's interesting, abide in me and I in you. Why? As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so he goes back to the agricultural illustration and say, look, uh, there is the big vine that grows out of the ground and you have the itty-bitty little branches that grow off with the grapes on them. If you want to have grapes that grow, the branch needs to be connected to the vine you can't cut them off and expect them to do well for those of you that have pretty flowers that grow in your yard you can't clip the flowers stick them in a vase and expect them to thrive for the next you know three years because they continue to bloom it's interesting christ is saying look if you have this relationship where i am all of who you are. I'm affecting all of the parts and pieces of your person. What will the consequence be is you will have fruit like you cannot believe. And what is the fruit? Well, it's not financial blessing. Not that kind of church because that's not really a church. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's that bubbling over of love of joy, of kindness and charity, of gentleness and grace, mercy, a slowness to anger, an ability to hold your tongue. Those are the fruit that bubble over when Christ is shaping and consuming all of who you are. It's why John here, writing this, understanding this, is going to pick it up in First John and Second John and Third John to say, you want to know how you can have confidence that you've been transformed? You want to know how you can have confidence that you've become a Christian? Look at the fruit. Because if you can't produce fruit, if you can't produce good fruit, you really have to worry if you're connected to the vine. When I was a kid, we built a fort, my buddies and I, out in the woods. And having some concept of survival, I don't even know where we learned this. It's comical now to think about it. 
we like, well, we knew we needed to strengthen it. We didn't have any ropes. So what we'll do is we'll have vines that'll grow all through the fort to strengthen it, you know, to make it nice and strong and hold it up like some sort of old house. Well, how do we get vines to grow? So we ran over to the, you know, the nearest kudzu plant or vine or whatever and broke off all the branches and stuck them in the ground. Went home, waited for it to rain, come back, you know, a couple of days later and like, why aren't the vines growing? (laughs) Because you broke off all the branches. You just stuck branches in the ground and you expect branches to grow. Of course branches aren't going to grow. They need big vines to make them strong. They need big vines to make them healthy. They need all of their life and nourishment and strength from the vine. Of course it's not going to live. You've separated the individual branch from the thing that gives it strength and sustenance. Well, I would apply that specifically for us now. Again, if if you look at your life and you have no fruit, I might lovingly suggest you need to consider if you're connected to Christ. Or if you look at your life and you say, you know what, there is fruit here. Praise God. I give him all the glory for that. But I would like to have more fruit. I would like to have more kindness Honestly, I've never met a Christian that's like, I wish I was a little bit less kind. (laughs) Fair enough. I'm sure there is that person. I just haven't met them yet. You like have more kindness. I'd like to be a bit more gentle. How many men are, I wish I could be a bit more gentle with my wife. Somehow it just doesn't work. I don't understand it. Well, Christ gives us the answer. Abide in him. Have who he is shape more and more who we are. Remember what Ryle said, how he explains this, to always be leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, using him as our fountain of life and strength, our chief companion and best friend, to keep his sayings continually in our memories and in our minds, to make them the guide of our actions, the rule of life. As we do that, he gives us strength and energy and ability to live in such a way. You want to have more fruit? Live in Christ. For as you are in Him, He has all abundance to give to you. He's going to talk about it. Well, I don't. Next point. It's an important transition to make. First, the presence of Christ produces fruit in his people. Secondly, the presence of Christ, it changes prayer for his people. It changes the relationship of prayer, what it does and how it works. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. It it makes sense. Look, if you want to have more gentleness, if you want to have more compassion, if you want to have more empathy, if you want to have more Christian charity, if you want to have greater faithfulness, to be a greater man or woman of God, what does he say? Ask and it will be given to you. Ask whatever you wish. You want more fruit? Ask whatever you wish, and God will give it to you. Why? Because by this, my Father's glorified that you produce much fruit. 
You want to produce more fruit? He's going to give you that because he loves when you produce fruit and he's glorified in you doing so. Now, I will be honest. It will be done through pruning. Let's be fair. I mean, that's how branches do produce more fruit. They're fertilized and strengthened. They're given water and they're pruned. So it may not be the easiest of process. I mean, the classic illustration is, I need to grow in patience. The Lord is going to make sure you find the most irritating of people for the next several weeks (laughs) to help you develop that great grace so that you may put into practice His Word, that you may find your need satisfied in Him and Him alone. You want to learn to be a forgiving person. Well, guess what's going to follow? People will sin against you, giving you the opportunity to forgive. Why? Because he loves you and he loves to give those things. You've heard me pray. Well, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me pray. it. We, we wish to be here a church that produces a lot of fruit. We don't want you to be a church that produces double or triple or tenfold. We wish to be a hundredfold, right? The kind of church that's bubbling over, you learned in elementary school of a cornucopia. You know, the horn of plenty that was like it was a bottomless horn of fruit or vegetables or whatever. We want to be that kind of church where there's this constant supply. Recognize that means that I'm praying for pruning for all of us. That doesn't mean I'm praying for easy lives because easy lives produce very little fruit. But praying that we would grow together. Jesus transitions from there. So at first, His presence produces fruit in His people. Secondly, it changes the nature of prayer because as we pray differently, He gives it because we're asking for the fruit that He has promised. And it helps us locate our emotions in the process. Yes, we're going to grow in Christ. We're going to grow through pruning. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds awful. Why would I ever want to do that? Well... Because of what Jesus explains in verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The presence of Christ produces fruit in his people. The presence of Christ changes prayer for his people. But the presence of Christ is the source of joy for his people. It's interesting as Christ is in us and he contaminates more and more of who we are and how we live. He contaminates more and more of our thoughts and our feelings and our actions. The consequence of it is joy. no matter the pruning that follows. It's a life of joy. And again, it makes sense in some sense. Which is a more joyful life, a life filled with love or a life lacking it? Which is a more joyful life, a life filled with faithfulness or a life lacking it? Which is a more joyful life, a life that's filled with self-control or one that's lacking it? Well, obviously, the fruit of the Spirit bring joy inherently to them. But because Christ is dwelling in His people, 
He shares his joy with us, and that joy is to be full. Again, using illustration, think of a car. When does the car operate, operate the best? Well, when, when you treat it the way the owner's manual says. And if you drive it without oil, is it a happy car? No. If you're driving, you know, 40 miles an hour through your neighborhood and you're like, oh, I forgot something, I'll just drop it in reverse. Is it a happy car? Well, I mean, the transmission engine might be outside of it by that point, but no, of course it's not a happy car. It, it, the car works best, it's happiest, when it's functioning the way it's designed. We as God's people are filled with joy the most when we are in His presence, remaining in Him. Now, it's interesting, Christ is giving this command at the time that He is. Because what does He know is going to happen in just a matter of moments? approximately 2,000 years of suffering are going to follow starting in about four hours. He knows that. It's not like he's unaware of what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. Well, in just a few moments, he's going to be betrayed. And then he's going to go through a farce of an illegal trial. And then he's going to be tortured. And then he's going to be murdered. And while he's in the process of being murdered, oh, by the way, as if being murdered wasn't bad enough, he will take the entirety of the wrath of God on the cross. And oh, no, that's the serious deal. And he'd remain under the power of the grave for a time. And then he would ascend into glory. And all of the suffering that he had begun would then be passed on to his people. And they would suffer day after day and night after night and day after day and night after night until he comes back to get them. He's not immune to the reality of what's following. But instead his presence is where true joy is. Is found. You wish to have joy? Again, I recognize some of us, we, we really struggle with this. Some don't. God, in His infinite mercy, makes some Christians that this is not part of the struggle of their daily life. They're just, whatever, contented in Christ by who they are. But praise God for Him making some that way. Others, you really wrestle with it. And if you are one of those people where joy is a battle that you have to fight for, I would encourage you. He's giving you the answer. Abide, live, remain, exist in him. Always be leaning on him, resting in him, pouring out your heart to him, using him as the fountain of life and strength, your chief companion and friend. Interestingly, Jesus continues with a minor transition. He started with the reality of my presence will produce fruit. And as part of that, you can ask God and he will help you with this fruit. And the consequence of this will be joy for the people of God. But he ends with a final application, verses 12 through 14. (laughs) What is the ultimate consequence of this? Well, oh yes, by the way, it's not about you. This fruit is not given for you to constantly consume, to feed yourself. Instead, the fruit is given for the body of Christ. 
12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Oh, by the way, he's going to do that in just a matter of hours. He knows what he's talking about. Oh, yeah, by the way, the men he's talking to, how many of them will do this? All but, what, one, two? They'll all die martyrs' deaths. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You're not my servants anymore. You're my friends because I've already told you what the plan is. I'm not simply telling you mindlessly to go. I've shared the reality of God's truth to you. Uh, And all of this because I've chosen you. You didn't choose me. I've chosen you. So go love one another. Share what I have given to you. You cultivate this fruit in your life, this gentleness, this faithfulness, this self-control. Why? So that it may be shared. So that as I as your pastor can see your gentleness grow. How fun is that, you think? Watching the, the pastor, watching the men in his room growing in gentleness. Or the, the teenagers growing in self-control. Ooh, that's fun. The joy that follows. Our closing hymn. We've started singing a bunch over the last, I don't know, five years really. And some of you know the story as to why we sing this and some of you don't. Uh, It's probably, uh, not probably, it is. This is my prayer more than anything else in my life. Five years ago, the Lord changed something in my mind and in my heart and how I think about life. And realizing, I guess, this truth in a greater fashion. And this suddenly became the words of my soul as I began to understand. This is my life. This is my goal. More than faithfully teaching the Bible, that's a byproduct. More than faithfully pastoring a church, that's a byproduct. More than faithfully praying for my people or visiting my people or going to that. More than any of those other things. There is one need I have, one prayer request that I have, one thing that is my highest and chief goal, which is why we sing this quite regularly. In fact, disproportionately high compared to the other songs. Abide with me. It's a simple prayer request, and you've heard this story, you know it. Henry Light is uh, a pastor, he's a Scottish pastor who pastored one congregation his entire life. He developed a lung disease that was killing him. And he knew he was dying. And he had to flee kind of northern England, Scotland to go to the south where it was warmer and the air was cleaner in an effort to try to stay alive longer. And uh, Sunday evening, they had worship morning and evening. Sunday evening, he comes in, he conducts his last worship service. It's his going goodbye service. I love it. Their understanding of what do you do for a goodbye party for a pastor, you let him preach. And he preaches, and after he preaches, he walks outside, and he's contemplating the end of his life. He's contemplating dying because he knows he is. And he walks down, and he sits next to the shore. And as the waves are lapping, and the sun is setting, and the moon is rising, and the clouds pass by, he writes this. It's his parting piece. He'd written a number of other hymns. It's his parting piece, the summary of the entirety of his life. And when it all comes down to the end of it, What is the sum totality of a faithful pastor's life? It is one simple request, abide with me. Now we've dropped some of the verses out. A number of them are just crushingly sad. 
of your faithfulness to me when I was young, even in the midst of my unfaithfulness to you. You showed mercy on me when I had no clue how the world worked, and now I still live in your mercy. My challenge for us is this. May it be that we don't wait till the end of our life to have our lives consumed with the effort of having Christ abide in us. May it not be that we wait till our deathbed to go, oh, I need Jesus in me. Oh, I need a life that's filled with the Spirit. Oh, by the way, I might be seeing Jesus soon. I better make sure I'm ready. May it not be that we wait till that day. May it be that we start today. May this be your song for your life for the days to come. May it be that God would abide with us and us in him, and we find joy together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us our sin. You have freely offered to us Christ in all his fullness, Son of God, Son of Man. And even for those of us that have received Him, we have so often been preoccupied with the trinkets of this place. Where we are so, more, so often more captivated with our money, our food, our pleasures, our loneliness or our friends and not captivated with our Savior. Lord, we ask that you would teach us that this might be our prayer, that you would abide with us and us in you. In Christ and Christ alone, we pray. Amen.